4 p.m. right here at KCSU Stanford, 90.1 FM. This is DJ Ramsey, and it is time for the weekly radio show that attempts to take you all over the Arabian Peninsula, the show that I simply title Arabology. On today's show, I am delighted to welcome uh, a very special guest. I have Arash Aramesh in person, live in the studio. He is uh, the National Security Analyst at Stanford Law School. He's also a student at Stanford. And this young man is doing... uh, quite a bit to change perceptions and has a very unique analysis of what's going on in terms of U.S.-Iranian relationships and the current situation. We've all been watching the news. Would be very interesting to get his take on that. I'll also be including uh, beautiful music, I hope, from the region and uh, uh, another interview later in the show with uh, a very special playwright. Her name is Muna Mansour, and her play, Urge for Going, is actually uh, creating quite a bit of waves in San Francisco. So stay tuned for that and a lot more coming to you from uh, KZSU Stanford, 90.0 FM. I'm your DJ Ramsey, and I'll be with you until 6. This was Arabic for welcoming everybody to KCSU Stanford 90.1 FM. I am your DJ Ramsey. And as I promised, with me in the studio today is none other than Arash Aramesh, who is the National Security Analyst at Stanford Law School, as well as a full-time student at Stanford. Let me welcome him in Arabic and see what happens. Assalamu alaikum, ya Arash. Wa alaikum salam, ya Ustad. It's uh, glad to be here. And so you spoke Perfect Arabic. <laughs> How, I thought you were uh, of uh, Iranian uh, descent. Well, what's going on? <laughs> Perhaps I'm very good at pretending. And, uh, you know, I try to sound or practice my very broken Arabic. But uh, a lot of uh, the Arabic I have learned is uh, a big thank you to you, first of all, because I've taken your class. But Well, uh, well I was going to do a, a little bit <laughs> disclaimer here and say that, I mean, I had the honor of working with you. You were uh, and are still an amazing student. 
student who uh, took uh, the task of learning Arabic very conscientiously. So you grew up uh, speaking uh, English and uh Persian? I did, yeah. My first language is Farsi. That's the language spoken at home. I was born in Iran, uh, spent a good uh, few years in Iran, uh, and moved to the U.S. when I was a teen, and uh, been here ever since uh, in Thousand Oaks, California. Uh, hello to all the uh, listeners, uh, if they're from <laughs> Southern California or if they're in the Bay Area, but are... Uh, uh, tuning in from Southern California. That's uh, where home is, Southern California, Thousand Oaks, near Simi Valley. Wow, wow, yeah. Spoken with a beautiful uh, American accent, one that I can't quite master at all. But, uh, but, but nevertheless, I mean, you grew up as, uh, as a bilingual speaker, right, in, in terms of your own, you know, background. I did. So first language is my, my mother tongue, my native tongue is Farsi. Uh, I, when I was five years old in Iran, my mom... Uh, forced me to go to an English school and learn uh, English. Now, if you're seven or eight or nine years old, and after you get out of school, you have to go to this other school for another two hours every night and practice English when your friends are playing soccer on the streets, yeah. that's not a very pleasant experience. But when we, when, when we came here to the U.S. for the first time, and I was 11, and I already knew enough vocabulary to be able to communicate with kids, with people, just go out and buy an ice cream, then I realized what a great decision my mother had made. Yeah, yeah. So maybe a big shukran to her. A big and, thank and, you to mom. And in, in retrospect, but then you know, uh, so you you of course spent your uh, adulthood and your uh, student years and all that here in uh, the U.S. and that led you to the Stanford Law School. You're currently at Stanford Law School. I am, and I'm very uh, grateful for uh, this opportunity. Stanford Law School is. Uh, uh, truly a unique place to be, both as a student and also as someone who, if, even if you live in the community and you have access to this great organization, to this great institution called Stanford University, that is, if not the best university in the world, is it's definitely one of the best. And uh, uh, very grateful. But a uh, little disclaimer, I didn't do my undergrad exactly at Stanford. I oh. was at a different school across the Bay. Um, shout out to all the uh, Berkeley, Cal Berkeley <laughs> alum. So, oh, no. Oh, no. And uh, I got called now <laughs> but um, and again that's a testament to uh, the quality of this country's public education especially California public education that UC Berkeley was very affordable at the time and I got a world-class education there it led me off to the London School of Economics I went there for my master's wow. then I went to Washington worked for a couple of years at a think tank and came to Stanford Law School, and I've, uh, it's my last year. I'm sad to say that I'm graduating this year. But you also seem to be at the Stanford Law School at a time where there's a real demand uh, by students, by faculty, by the Stanford community, and by the world at large for people who are American, who know a little bit uh, from personal experience about you know having lived in Iran, having lived here, and uh, maybe defying some of the uh, myths out there that seem to govern this very a seemingly problematic relationship between the U.S. and Iran. You are a national security analyst at the Stanford Law School. You've been on CNN and Al Jazeera and other outlets where you've uh, sort of spoken about your point of view. And uh, and I think I can think of no one better to kind of give us a little bit of uh, an opinion about what you feel about this whole uh, crescendo of events uh, with this sort of very uh, uh, interesting uh, development. Uh, U.S.-Iran relations are one of the most complicated arenas of foreign policy. Uh, as you know, uh, before the 1979 revolution in Iran, uh, there was a 
ruler in Iran, the Shah, the mm-hmm. king of Iran, who was a very good, solid U.S. ally. Now, he perhaps had a pretty horrendous human rights record. He did not exactly uh, rule his country with the most effective means, and he was toppled in a popular revolution. What replaced it turned out to be an anti-Western theocratic regime, as we know, is the Islamic Republic of Iran. And uh, following the uh, takeover of the U.S. Embassy in 1980, uh, most of you have probably seen the movie Argo, Ben Affleck's movie. And after that U.S. Embassy takeover and also the hostage-taking that lasted for 444 days, uh, U.S. and Iran, uh, the United States cut off its diplomatic ties with Iran. And then you have the beginning of no U.S.-Iran relations. That was 34 years ago. Uh, So uh, ever since the two countries' uh, relations have been very complicated and not exactly the best of relationships to talk about. Now, uh, Iran has been perceived and is actively acting as uh, a Thor in in U.S.'s eyes and U.S. interests in the region. Uh, But recently, uh, it seems that some of these, uh, this sort of frozen relationship is coming to to be thought out. And uh, uh, what seems to be very important now in terms of our national security and also uh, regional security is Iranian nuclear program. And um, perhaps most of your listeners know that right now, Iran and the P5 plus one, that's the UN Security Council plus Germany, are in active talks with Iran about its nuclear program. And uh, I am cautiously optimistic about the outcome of these talks uh, because uh, most analysts and some experts believe that perhaps this is our last chance for resolving this problem, this Iranian nuclear dossier, in a peaceful diplomatic manner. And so how much of this thawing out of the relationship that you mentioned is due to the new president of Iran, to the new leader? I mean, it doesn't seem like under the previous leader there seemed to be any room for dialogue. How does the new leader kind of change things? The new Iranian president, Mr. Hassan Rouhani, uh, comes from what we call the sort of moderate wing of the Iranian uh, ruling establishment. Now, don't get me wrong, he's no liberal Democrat, Mm -hmm. and don't get me wrong, he's no uh, human rights activist, but comparing him to his uh, predecessor, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, who was obviously very well known in the U.S. because of his uh, many, because of his inflammatory rhetoric, his anti-Semitic, anti-Israel, anti-Western uh, inflammatory rhetoric, he became pretty well known. Uh, let me let me throw this out here right now, sort of uh, give you a little background about how the Iranian government works, and it's a pretty complex uh, theocratic regime. Yes, uh, the, the president in Iran doesn't have much power. I mean, mm. that even though he is an elected person, even though he has to go through so many different barriers to be elected, has to be approved by the Guardian Council. But the key decision maker in Iran, the key policy decision maker, especially about key sensitive areas such as nuclear policy, foreign policy, is the supreme leader. Mm -hmm. Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, who is the supreme leader of the Islamic Republic. And unfortunately, the media hasn't done a good job covering him. Mm. Uh, and he's the key decision maker. No matter what Rouhani does, no matter what Ahmadinejad had to do in the past eight years, at the end of the day, the supreme leader who controls the armed forces, the intelligence ministries, the security forces, and big chunks of Iranian assets uncontrolled by the government, mm. he can override and veto any decision 
the wow. president in Iran makes. Wow. And also, we got to keep in mind that the Iranian nuclear program inside Iran has been sort of tied into national identity. We're talking about a very proud group of people. We're talking about a country that has over 2,500 years of history. We're talking about a group of people that identified themselves with a great history. And now they, some people in Iran perceive the nuclear program as a, as, 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 as a sort of a national, uh, as, as an item of national pride. So we're, we're dealing with a delicate task. First and foremost, reach a diplomatic, peaceful solution Mm -hmm. that keeps us happy, keeps Israel happy, keeps the Western world and our allies in the region happy. At the same time, it's acceptable enough for the Iranian leadership to say okay to. And their concerns are A, security, because they know if you have a nuclear bomb, it's also kind of hard to invade you and topple you. So, and B, uh, to sort of rectify their errors of the past. The Iranian economy is suffering greatly. Part of it is due to sanctions. Part of it is due to economic mismanagement. So the Iranian leadership right now is trying to reach a consensus to see how they can package a deal that is acceptable to the West while they're not selling the whole house. And so um, when we hear that the talks in Geneva have broken down, have led haven't led anywhere do you feel that that's the end of it or do you feel that there's still more to come that there is still room for negotiation the parties are going to meet again in about a week they're going to go back to geneva they're going to talk there's still more room for negotiations uh secretary of state john Kerry. Uh, Vice President Joe Biden and the President, President Obama himself today, have strongly lobbied Congress not to levy additional sanctions. They have also uh, removed some uh, Iranian assets that have been frozen in in, in the U.S. and other countries for so many years. We're talking about about $45 billion. Now, again, 95% of sanctions are going to remain in place until Iran makes a significant move to build that trust. However, these are sort of good faith gestures to the Iranian leadership that, hey, you make the right steps, you take the right steps in the right direction, we are willing to work with you. Now, there are some key sensitive issues to the Iranian, uh, to the Iranian government here. First and foremost, the issue of enrichment. Mm. They have been adamantly uh, staying on the position that we have the right to enrich on Iranian soil. Mm. The West is not going to simply accept that. Mm. Second issue is the stockpile of uranium. They have 20% enriched uranium and anything higher. The West wants that destroyed or transferred to another country. Mm. Third, in order to make sure that we can verify this, the West wants inspections. Well, a lot of these facilities are pretty sensitive. Some of these places fall into military zones. Iranians are not exactly going to be open to opening up their military facilities. Mm. And fourth, and this is pretty sensitive, is... our our ability to be able to interview Iranian scientists who work on the nuclear program. And why the Iranians aren't open to that? Well, in the past four years, a few Iranian scientists have been assassinated. So if they open up their list, they're worried about more fallout. Well, more assassination. So these are the four big key demands. Am I optimistic? Yes, but I'm cautiously optimistic. Cautiously optimistic because when I hear you lay, uh, you know, speak about these four huge obstacles, you know, potential obstacles here, I kind of get the feeling that these are going to be insurmountable. Well, there is a segment of regime loyalists and supporters of Ayatollah Khamenei and the Islamic Republic of Iran who are completely opposed to making any concessions. They would love to see Iran's doors to the West shut, Mm. country closed, let's go the North Korea route, let's weaponize, let's enrich, and then say, you know what, we did it. 
Well, what's going to happen if they go down that route? They're going to be extremely isolated. The sanctions are going to get much worse. And you know what? There is Iran is not North Korea. So there's the possibility of, unfortunately, there's the possibility of military actions by Israel or by the United States. Now, the moderates in Iran, if we call them moderates in Iran, are trying to reach a middle ground. On the one hand, they do not want and they cannot alienate people like Ayatollah Khamenei, the supreme leader, and very strong forces at play here, like the Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps, the IRGC, very active not only in Iran, but also in the region, in many places from all the way from Lebanon to Afghanistan. They cannot alienate these forces. At the same time, they know that they have to reach a middle, um, sort of a middle ground or sort of a, a, a acceptable point for a deal to be acceptable by the West. And they have a pretty hard task to do. Ras Aramis is speaking with you and listening to you has always been a very eye-opening and educational experience. I don't know how to say shukran to you. Uh, enough shukran, alf shukran for coming uh, to the studio today. Um, honored and humbled to be here and I would say shukran kathiri ustad and uh, inshallah shufak qariban uh, ala radio. Ras shukran jazilan for coming in Wa, and I have to say anta daiman daiman talib mumtaz. Shukran kathiri ustad. Ma'assalama ya ibni.
was the powerful vocals of Hiba Tawaji and uh, you just heard a song uh, called La Bidayi La Nihayi literally translated means no beginning and no end and that's of course the song is The Windmills of Your Mind a song that's of course very famous and I think this is the first time that an Arab artist has attempted to Arabicize this song and, and put these beautiful lyrics that you heard again uh, her name uh, was uh, Hiba Tawaji and uh, she is uh, just uh, an amazing singer who uh, is from Lebanon. She's also an actress and a director. She sings in Arabic, French, and English. She's uh, worked uh, closely with one of the Rahbani clan members. That is Usama Rahbani. He is a producer and a composer and the son of the music uh, musical legend Mansoor Rahbani. And uh, the song before uh, was actually another song that 
you might have recognized. It was Matitrikni Haik by the Lebanese uh, alternative group Mashrua Layla, and uh, it was the Arabic version of a French song that everybody, I guess, in Europe knows. Ne me quitte pas by Jacques Brel. And we began the set well with another Arabicized classic. This time it was Now or Never. This time sung by Algerian uh, legendary singer Rashid Taha. Ladies and gentlemen, I began today's show actually with a group called Kulna Sawa. And from Iza'at Kulna Sawa, Radio Kulna Sawa, we began the program today right here on the Arabology Show. Coming to you from KZSU Stanford, 90.1 FM. I am your DJ Ramsey and I'll be with you until uh, 6 p.m. today and every Thursday. So don't go anywhere. Today, you ate Greek yogurt. You took the train. You wondered why people spend so much time reading celebrity blogs. You did all the things that one normally does the day before a devastating earthquake shakes the community to the ground. You never know when the day before is the day before. Prepare for tomorrow at ready.gov slash today. Brought to you by FEMA and the Ed Council. It is 4.41 p.m. right here at KZSU Stanford, 90.1 FM. I am about to play Pangea. And from their uh, new album, here's a track that I grew up in the 70s listening to. The original song was called uh, Mariam Mariamti. And uh, I'm actually going to play the instrumental version just released on Pangea's new album. So if you feel like dancing, ladies and gentlemen, now is the time.
That was uh, Pangea, ladies and gentlemen, and uh, a song called Mariam Mariamti, and uh, well, their own version of that beautiful song. Uh, coming to you right there on the Arabology Show. I, my name is uh, DJ Ramsey, and I'm with you every Thursday trying to bring you all a melange of uh, songs that come in from the Arab-speaking world. And in doing so, my hope, of course, is to uh, showcase some of the amazing uh, talent, old and new, that is coming in from the region at a time of turmoil and conflicts. It is always comforting to know that there is an equally powerful stream of uh, uh, creativity that is coming out of these difficult situations. And it is perhaps through music and art and poetry and other cultural productions that is kind of uh, sanity may be eventually regained. And uh, one of the uh, things I enjoy doing here is to bring you a taste of uh, cultural productions in the Bay Area that are related to the Arab world. And one of those, of course, is the play Urge for Going. The play Urge for Going is written by Muna Mansour. Golden Thread Productions proudly presents the West Coast premiere of Urge for Going by Muna Mansour. And uh, it uh, seems to be a very interesting play. I am about to give two tickets to tomorrow's performance of this play. So if anybody's interested, uh, you can uh, call during the uh, upcoming interview. I'll be interviewing the playwright herself, Muna Mansour, about the play. But let me tell you a little bit about it. It is to it is going to be at the Z Below in San Francisco. But the tickets that the two tickets I'm giving away are for tomorrow's show. Tomorrow, f- of course, being Friday. If you're interested, call 650-723-9010. Call anytime during the next interview with uh, Muna Mansour. This is KCSU Stanford, 90.1 FM. Welcome to the Arabology Show. This is your DJ Ramsey, and I'm with you every Thursday from 4 p.m. to 6 p.m. with amazing Arabic music and equally amazing guests. Case in point is Muna Mansour, playwright and an amazing woman that I just met. Welcome to KCSU, Muna. Thank you. Is this your first time here at Stanford? Yeah. 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 So what's your... Uh, I think I'm going to be an engineer now. It'll make my, my family very happy. Really? From playwright to engineer? Yeah, just walking on the campus, I feel like I'm an engineer. Well, you were probably in the engineering department. Yeah. Stick- I mean, I breathe the air and now that's it. That's yeah. all I need. No, come breathe our air in the humanities. <laughs> you'll, you'll be a lot more inspired, I think, in terms of writing your plays. Because, Muna, you have actually written this amazing play called Urge for Going. Mm-hmm. And let's tell the, the listeners right away when it's playing and where. Well, it's... It starts, we have our first preview tonight. Tonight, Thursday. Um, Thursday. November 14th, there we go. And the play goes on from November 14th all the way through December 8th. Yeah, and this Saturday is what they call the press opening. So we are, that's sort of opening night, and there's a reception after. I'm told that there will be uh, Arak. Wow. Uh, I'm promising that. Are you you even old enough to know what Arak is? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. When I was growing up, we called it Uzo. Uzo. Why? The the Greeks call it Uzo. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, Arak, for those people who don't know, you know, it's an alcoholic drink. It tastes what, like licorice? Yeah, you mix it with a little water and ice. It's dangerous, Muna. Yeah. You drink that, you think you're eating licorice, and then you can't stand up. Well. (laughs) So, yes, the play begins, we said, uh, tonight, uh, Thursday, November Mm -hmm. 14th. If they go to the web, website, Golden Thread. Uh, I think it's goldenthread.org. Indeed. It has all the information. Um, I just flew in yesterday, so I'm, you know, kind of catching up on everything. Sure. You flew in from New York. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So is that where you're uh, settled? Is New yeah. York? Yeah. And is that where you wrote the play? 
You know what? I started to write it years ago. I was out in L.A. actually working for um, a TV show. I had already moved to New York. And I, yeah, so it's like it's been written in different places, but um, mostly New York. It had a production in New York a couple of years ago. And the way the, that it came about was sort of just this initial question was, let me write about my father's homeland. Wow. What do I want to write about? And, and what, what, where is your father's homeland? Uh, he's from Lebanon mm-hmm. and uh, from the south, uh, uh, from a village called Miyumiya. I call it a village. It is a village. Hmm. They will say to you, oh, no, it's a suburb of Saida. It's like, guys, <laughs> come on now. Have you been yourself? Uh, yeah, yeah, I went in uh, uh, January 2011. And, uh, you know, my father has a very complicated relationship with homeland. I guess that probably isn't that unusual Mm -hmm. with a lot of Arab Americans. So honestly, he came with me. And I think the only reason he came with me was uh, I'm worried about my grown daughter going to Lebanon. And so he came. Yeah. 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 And we walked around the village and people would say, do you remember me? And he'd say, no. Wow. Then they'd say, but come on, try to take a guess. He'd say, no. Wow. And then they would say their name and he'd say, I still don't remember you. Muna, I mean, that must have been some, uh, uh, you know, emotional bonding going on there to be with your dad in, uh, you know, that village. And uh, for you to, uh, as somebody who, you know, lives in America, no, uh, yeah. sort of reconnect with your roots. Absolutely. It's such a strange, I mean, strange and beautiful. I want to go back. He doesn't want to go back. I wanted to go back this summer. The, one of the strange things, you know, we're in the village and there's this house that's like uh, rubble, right? Uh, it belongs to my cousins and mm-hmm. they're not rebuilding it. It's it's tragic. The, the relationship, you know, I'm fully aware that like my relationship to place, my relationship to Lebanon is different than say my cousin Ehab. Mm-hmm. You know, Ehab was driving a Uh, an ambulance for the for the Red Cross during the war. Wow! You know, I've been to these places that he hasn't been, mm. right? And mm. he lives in uh, he lives in San Diego, mm. where half the village lives, San Diego and uh, and L.A. So he sort of regards me like, huh? What are you doing? And yet he gets it yeah. because I grew up around that culture. Wow. And so urge for a going was uh, inspired by that trip with your dad? or No, no. I had written it before that. Before that. And the theater that was producing it in New York, the public theater, um, they sponsored me to go along with my director. And we went. Uh, we went to Shatila Camp, wow. um, which you probably know is in Beirut. Yeah. We tried to go to Ain El Helwe, but um, at the last minute, the... Uh, army said, well, we can't let you go in there. So they wouldn't mm. let us go in. So so what year was that? 2011. 2011, pretty recent. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. as just we were coming back, everything was starting to go on in like Tahrir Square and all that. So it was like before. Yeah. So when did you write the play? Yeah, I started to write it in like, say, 2007. And sometimes what happens is you put things on the back burner. Mm-hmm. I finished it, finished it, say, 2008. It's never really finished. But mm. then I sent it... Um, to the public theater in New York, a very well-known theater, and it got me into, um, they have this writing group there called the Emerging Writers Group. And then a beautiful thing happened, which is I got in that group, and then they said, well, we actually want to produce this play. So huge gift, huge gift. And, um, you know, as I've presented the play or as I've done readings, it's, 
I mean, it's so interesting. There's so many layers that people sort of don't know about. And, and there are people who, you know, don't know about Palestinian refugees in Lebanon. Yeah, because that's the topic of the play. I mean, you're saying you're of Lebanese descent and uh, you've been to Lebanon and all that. But the play is actually about a Palestinian girl. Yeah, Jamila. 17-year-old Jamila, interesting name. She actually grew up in a Lebanese refugee camp. So she's a Palestinian refugee in Lebanon. Mm-hmm. And what's the story about, you know, just generally? Yeah, it's a very basic story really it's very much about this family it's very much about her and her father hello mm-hmm. <laughs> autobiography <laughs> to some degree um, the push pull of this father who has pushed her her whole life and her brother you must succeed you must succeed and the play is takes place just as she's facing the baccalaureate um, which will change her life and that's sort of you know history is sort of in the here and now, mm-hmm. I think, for so, these people. So Jamila at age 17 is we're in what year? 2003. 2003. I, yeah. yeah. We decided, okay, we want to kind of lock down the year of the play. Yeah. We also sort of felt like, okay, as as we were actually getting ready to go into production in 2011, so many things were happening in the Arab world that it was like, you know, I didn't want, it wasn't about that, the uprising, et cetera, et cetera. And I don't know that much has changed, actually, for Palestinians since 2003. Yeah, but, yeah. but at the same time, we sort of wanted to lock it in a year. Um, so that's when it takes place. She's, she's studying. She's trying to study. She lives in a small place. My director last night said, I actually wish we could make it even smaller. Mm. As you probably know, I mean, for me, just going to Shatila, everyone has just built up up and up and up. There's nowhere to go. There's, there's no extra land yeah. they've been given. And the population is... Quadrupled or God knows what since 48. Right, right. And these refugees have been there, many of them since then. Ah. And yeah. that, as a playwright, um, was something I found so compelling when I started to really immerse myself in studying about Palestinians in Lebanon. It, it was sort of a Chekhovian thing to mm. me the weight, the weight, the weight, mm-hmm. and, and how it goes against everything. That your reason tells you, and then she's born into this, you know, and she's born in the refugee camp. Mm-hmm. What is her relationship to home? Uh, I'm talking with uh, Muna Mansour, who actually wrote this uh, play called Urge for Going, and, and, and people can uh, get information again by visiting uh, the website for goldenthread.org. Uh, Muna Mansour, I would like to have you back on the show next week to talk a little bit more Please. about your process yeah, yeah. and your other works, I okay. hear. All right. Shukran, Muna, for being here today on the Arabology Show. Thank you. Hey man, are you digging those smooth and creamy sounds that you're hearing on KZSU Stanford? Well, if you are, here's a thought. You could put your money where your ears is. That's right, man. Donate to KZSU. Thanks, and don't forget to keep on listening. Five p.m. right here at KZSU Stanford ninety point FM, and I'm going to begin the next set with a very special song by a uh, an amazing budding talent coming in from Egypt. Her name is Dunya Samir Ghanim, and uh, this young lady's been releasing her CD in a in a new way, uh, one track at a time uh, on the internet instead of uh, selling it or uh, promoting it as a uh, finished work. Uh, so she's. Uh, 
released seven, several tracks uh, from her new album called Wahda Tanya Khalis. And among those, I was extremely uh, moved by a track called El Wa'ta which means that time steals from us. Uh, the, the vocals in Arabic are quite gorgeous, as is the instrumentation and the uh, music. I'm going to be playing that song in uh, just a bit, but at first I thought I would uh, attempt to uh, read the, some of the vocals and perhaps offer a quick translation. I think that will, inshallah, help our listeners uh, understand why this song is so special. It has such universal messages about time and life and even death. ممكن في ثواني تفرقنا ساعات الدنيا بتلهينا عن أغلى وأقرب الناس لينا وفي يوم عمرنا ما منتمنى نلاقيهم ما بقوش حوالينا منحسش بقيمة الحاجة إلا لما تروح وكان في صوت بيصرخ فينا وإحنا ما منسمعش ونندم على اللي ضاعوا وراحوا وقلبنا مجروح يا ريت الوقت يرجع بينا بس ما بيرجعش زمان كانوا هنا بينا وحوالينا واللقى مسموح ودلوقتي ومهما بكينا للقى ما بينفعش قرب من كل اللي حبيبهم شيل عنهم خوفهم وتعبهم يمكن يسيبوك هم الأول أو يمكن أنت اللي تسيبهم على كل ما تقدر فرحهم بصلهم واحفظ ملامحهم حجيلك يوم في تتمنى لو حتى في نومك تلمحهم
Ladies and gentlemen, that was a beautiful track by a very young singer. Her name is uh, Dunya Samir Ghanem. And uh, actually, the last name Ghanem, and especially when it comes to Samir Ghanem, her father, uh, is uh, sort of a household name. He's a very famous comedian actor from Egypt. But this young lady certainly is uh, not uh, a product of nepotism, as you just heard. Uh, she is a singer in her own right. And she just sang uh, a track called El Wa'at. Uh, which uh, is something like time is a thief I uh, attempted to read the lyrics in Arabic before the song let me attempt to quickly uh, give you an idea of what the song was about in English uh, it's a song that talks about uh, how time betrays all people how time passes quickly and that often we don't appreciate something until it is gone the lyrics uh, go something like uh, there are times where worldly pleasures take us away from everything, from people who we love and are closest to us, and then on a day that you would never wish for, we find that suddenly they are gone. We don't appreciate many things in life until they are gone, while within us all this time there's a sound crying out and we don't hear it. We regret things that have been lost and gone, and our heart often bleeds. Oh, that time would return, but it never does. They were here among us and around us, and we could see them any time. And now, no matter how much we cry, we'll never meet them again. So, come close to those you love. Try to alleviate their pain and their fear. Maybe they'll be the ones who leave first. Maybe it'll be you. But in the meantime, try as much as you can to bring them joy. Look at them. Memorize their facial expressions. There'll be a time where you wish you had that moment, even if it were in a dream. Those were, that was a loose translation of the song by uh, Dunya Samir Ghanem. And it's a beautiful track called El Yisra'na, Time is a Thief. Ladies and gentlemen, it is 5.10 p.m. right here at KZSU Stanford, 90.1 FM. I am your DJ Ramsey. And uh, keeping with this uh, beautiful kind of mellow tunes, how about we turn to Yasmin Hamdan and listen to her contribution to today's uh, Arabology so
I'm 
voice of uh, Dunya Samir Ghanem and a song uh, called Usset Shita. It's a story of winter and it is uh, yet another track from her album Wahda Tanya Khalis. Before that uh, we heard uh, the Lebanese uh, ultra amazing alternative independent singer. Her name is Tanya Saleh and from her new CD which is called Live at DRM we, had, we heard her sing live yimkin law yimkin law means if only and uh, we began the set of course with uh, none other than Yasmin Hamdan who is one of Lebanon's biggest successes in terms of musical success in uh, Europe she is currently on tour I think there isn't a European country she hasn't been to and uh, playing to sold out crowds everywhere we heard a song called La Mush and uh, that song of course is taken from her new album Yanas Yanas means OP people. 5.26 p.m. right here at KZSU Stanford. I am your DJ Ramsey. And uh, here's a, a segment from my interview with Yazan Khalife. Now, if you've heard of this young man's name, it probably means you're into caricature and illustration. He hails from Jordan and he's already established quite a reputation for himself as one of the Arab world's leading caricaturists. He actually draws these amazing caricatures that immediately captivate 
captivate you of political leaders, especially those in the Arab world and other famous figures, and always manages to have something about the caricature that makes them uh, resonate uh, with truth in terms of their personality. Uh, if you're interested in his uh, in this kind of illustration, you definitely should check out his Facebook page at Yazan Khalife illustration and so that would be on facebook uh might be a good idea to kind of check out his art as you listen to him speak about his art in the next segment his name is again yazan khalife he hails from jordan and he sat down with me uh recently for this interview for the arabology show in which he discusses his artistic journey and more importantly the kind of caricatures that he's doing in terms of inspiration political significance and the like. I'm sitting here with Yazan Khalife, who is, uh, well, one of the most brilliant illustrators that I've encountered of late, and whose work is uh, currently available on the net and elsewhere. But more importantly, he is here in person to speak to us a little bit about his journey into this kind of specific illustration and about his background. So, Yazan, marhaba and welcome to Arabology. Marhaba, thank you, Ramzi, for having me today. And the first question I have to ask is, where does this talent come from? Well, it was a natural thing uh, that I have to... uh, I started developing as a child. I was always interested in drawing and painting and uh, participating in exhibitions and galleries uh, at school first. And then I started... uh, uh, I figured I want to study graphic design because it was the only thing available for artists, emerging artists to study in uh, local universities in Jordan. So I went to the graphic design field and there I was exposed more into drawing and art in general. And after that I started uh, showing more interest uh, towards illustration than graphic design. So from there on I kept, just, I kept my heart uh, involved in illustration more than uh, design. Um, and from then on, I uh, p- tried to pursue the higher education in illustration to actually to be more professional and to have a career, solid career in illustration. So, yes, and you are currently at the Academy of Arts College in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. You're do- pursuing your master's in mm-hmm. illustration. And you have been through this process creating and recreating historical figures. Um, I mean, the, 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 since this is a radio show, we immediately should tell people that they should go to Yazan Khalife Illustration, Mm -hmm. which is the page on Facebook, to see what we're talking about through this uh, Mm -hmm. interview. But uh, what makes you pick a personality to illustrate? It's usually uh, events that's going on, uh, whether it's in politics, in art, uh, in uh, celebrities that's uh, making the news. So I just uh, pick a celebrity or a politician that uh, interests me to, to portrait and from then from then on I just uh, start working on uh, trying to capture his essence his personality through caricature um, yeah, so I'm looking here at your, at your website and I'm picking for example Basim Youssef mm-hmm. who is often known as the uh, Egyptian version of uh, John Stewart with his late night show and his daring and, and I see in the illustration that you have him with devil horns and a devil's uh, tail yeah now the like scheme is uh, looks like a devil yeah. <laughs> but he has that smile I mean yeah, I could stare at this for hours and and yeah. and, and 
you know, and I understand that it's not really about what the artist maybe intended. It's more about what people are going to see. But since I do have the artists here, what would the intention be here? What uh, triggered this? What triggered this was that Basim Yusuf was uh, uh, held uh, accused for uh, insulting the president, Morsi, back then. Uh, so they just uh, took him to custody and they had him in custody for like a couple of days. So I decided to portray him as the devil because uh, that's the way he looked in the eyes of the Muslim Brotherhood. Mm. He was uh, being the, the mean and anti-Islamic. That's what how they look at him. Uh, but he was actually just uh, criticizing their uh, way of thinking. So I had him portrayed as a devil, as the, the, the way they see him. And not the, the way I see him, but the way the Muslim brothers see him. And I think that's what's interesting about your work, is looking at somebody, you can't say, you know, that Yazan Khalifa is necessarily demonizing the person. Exactly. It's not my it's, personal... Uh, uh, yeah, it's, more, it's, it's more of a public... Uh, view that has to uh, that relates to the event how long does it take you to actually capture the essence of something like Amir Diab on you know in an illustration it's, it varies from one person to another some people are more easy to capture uh, they have like uh, unique faces or they remind you of some kind of uh, creature or an animal sometimes some people are more funny looking than others or unique looking some people are more classical looking you know so Uh, depends. Well, I can't uh, let you go without asking about my all-time favorite singer, who anybody who listens to Arabology show knows this. Yes, and you probably don't, but it's uh, I'm a Fairuzaholic. Mm -hmm. And uh, the first thing I, when I heard about you, I said, "Did he do Fairuz?" Because I saw these amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me about the Fairuz experience. Why did you choose that time period, and what what essence of Fairuz can we? put into words if any when I first started doing these kinds of caricatures I was um, always looking for uh, icons in the Arab world and legends and especially in the field of arts and entertainment so it was, was a must definitely um, and I had to capture the way she looked uh, back in the 70s uh, simple girl uh, with the simple clothes and the ribbons on her hair and tried to capture the, her long nose and features mm -hmm. So that was what I was going after. Yeah. But I mean, you chose that period, which I mean, Fairuz has been around for so many decades that you ch if you had chosen a different period, you'd have a different sort of generation relating to that picture, mm -hmm. maybe more. Is this a generational thing for you? Like this is the Fairuz you grew up with? Exactly, uh, yeah. I was born in the late 70s, so... Would you do more than one illustration of the same artist? Yeah, yeah, especially if... Uh If, there's, if she goes back to the news now, based on a certain incident, I would definitely try to portray her in another one. So have you? Not yet.
herself the ultimate Lebanese diva singing El Bint Shalabiya, kind of a new version of that from her album Afi Amal and what a wonderful way to uh, bring us uh, towards the close of today's episode of Arabology I want to say a very special shukran and thank you to my guests on today's show including Arash Aramesh and uh, Lebanese uh, um, American playwright Muna Mansour not to mention uh, Jordanian artist and caricature illustrator Yazan Khalife. My name is uh, DJ Ramsey and uh, as a last track today I thought we would play a track by Sheb E. Sabah who as you might have heard died last Thursday November 7th at the age of 66 after a two year battle with stage 4 stomach cancer. Sheb E. Sabah uh, passed away in San Francisco. He was gifted with a radiant person and a joyous spirit. Shab-i Sabah, in fact, was a DJ and composer producer known for combining Asian, Arabic, and African sounds into his compositions. He was born in Algeria into a family of musicians, moved to Paris as a teenager, and then in 1964 began his career DJing American soul uh, music records. He then settled in San Francisco in 84 and and the rest, of course, is legendary. Here is to you, Sheb E. Sabah. <laughs> 